We're back in the book of Colossians this week. And we are going to be looking into chapter 2, 1 through 7. And I want to show you an outline. I'm a big believer in outlines, not because you know, there's a ton of material to go through, but I think it helps organize our thoughts. So let me show you where we're going to be going. If you remember last week, we looked at the apostolic task starting in verse 24 of chapter 1. Well, that continues all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. And this week, it's actually, we're going to be into chapter 2 through verse 7. So when you see... Colossians 2, 6 through 15, there's actually a shift in theme, and it's going to be talking about Christ in his fullness, which is actually going to be the antidote to the error of the Colossian heresy, namely that they needed to invoke angels and that they didn't have sufficiency in Christ alone. So realize this morning I'm going to get into verses 1 through 7, and so we're going to be bridging kind of two different sections but I did that because that's all I could fit in our 50 minutes. There's a lot in these passages. Okay. Now let me show you a little bit how this lays out. Chapter 1, 24 through 29, that's what we looked at last time. And that was where Paul was talking about his apostolic authority and the fact that he was longing for the Colossians to remain faithful to the gospel. And if you re- recall, he used a lot of third person. Well, this time we're going to see he switches. It becomes more personal. It's a direct personal address. He uses you. And we're going to see that you is not only extends to the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and those in Hierapolis, but also to all of us by extension. Okay? So it's very personal. He's going to address us as you. Now, let me, um, I'm actually going to start in a kind of an odd area this morning. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Laodicea because Paul is going to mention them. And I think we actually gain some insight as to what this area of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis would have looked like according to the book of Revelation. So Revelation 3:14, John writes this. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful... The true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor, I'm sorry, neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now let me just stop there real quick. Here's the Lycus Valley. This is where the Meander River meets the Lycus River here. And these are their mountain ranges on either side. Laodicea here had no water supply, whereas Hierapolis, that town had a water supply that had really hot springs, okay? Well, then Colossae that you see here had very cold water. And in the New Testament and Old Testament times, hot water was often known as therapeutic or healing, and cold water was life-giving. It was the water that you'd want to drink. Well, what you're seeing is Jesus isn't saying, I wish that you were either hot or cold. In other words, you're either for me or against me. But what he's saying is, I, either, I wish you were either life-giving or healing, but you're a lukewarm, worthless. Okay? Because by the time the water got to them, it was a tepid, lukewarm. It was disgusting. And so what Jesus is saying is, not that I wish you could be either before me or against me, but you're a disgusting, useless, good-for-nothing church because you've forgotten your first love. That's the idea that you get here. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. The lukewarm water was good for inducing vomiting. <laughs> well, it's good for something. <laughs> but 
vomit you out of my mouth. Yes. So that is, well, at least that was something. Yeah. <laughs> so they were useless. But here's why. And I think we get some understanding of what Paul's going to talk about in the next verse here in Colossians. Let me continue on then. In verse 17, John continues. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. These people at Laodicea, and I'm going to contend in Colossae and Hierapolis, were very wealthy. This is the Beverly Hills, if you will, of this area. They were wealthy because they had a lot of wool that they sold. They had a large banking industry. In fact, Cicero actually deposited huge sums of his money in these banks. They were so wealthy that when an earthquake hit in 17 A.D., the Romans went to help them, and they said, no thanks, we'll take care of it. They had enough money. These people were self-reliant, and they were relying upon their riches, not in Christ, but in themselves. And I think you're going to see a play on these words in the next verse. So more than likely, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, these are very wealthy people, and many of the Christians had forgotten to rely upon Christ rather than their riches. Now, by the way, this passage actually helps us understand that this book of Revelation should be dated to 95 A.D. Now, why do I say that? Because notice the claim is that they're rich. Well, if that, there was another earthquake that happened in 60 A.D. Now, remember the preterists? Those are those who believe that Revelation was written much earlier in the 60s. You would have to believe that they, the Laodicea in that area suffered an earthquake in 60 A.D., and then with just a few years, they were able to build themselves completely back up and they're wealthy again. See, there wouldn't be enough time, in my opinion. So, but if you went to 95 A.D., when, what, that's when I believe Revelation was written, then you'd have enough time for Laodicea to pull themselves back up by their bootstraps. And then these words would be apropos. Does that make sense? Okay. But anyway, the big point that I want you to see here is I think these people are very wealthy and they're trusting in their riches. And you're going to see a play on words here in the next verse where Paul says the real wealth is in Christ. So look at Paul's struggle here for the Lycus Valley saints. Colossians 2, 1 through 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, okay, again, their neighboring town, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. Now, there's a lot of issues in this passage. Not that it's a bad translation in the NES, but we can tighten it up. We need to tighten this up just a little bit so we get the full force of what Paul is saying. First of all, notice, my friends, this term that. Anytime you see a that or a so that or a therefore, it's typically a purpose. Okay. In fact, this is a hina in Greek. So this is the purpose clause. What does Paul want to accomplish? Well, he wants their hearts to be encouraged and a better translation of encouraged would actually be strengthened. He wants them to be strengthened, okay, in other words, being strengthened in their faith. Now, here comes this participle that's very important to translate right, having been knit together. I'm going to make the case that having been knit together is leading us slightly astray in this passage. It would be better rendered having been instructed. Okay, now let me make the case. and I've got some passages for you guys to read. And let's see, we'll start with 
Matthew 13, 15. I know I gave that to somebody. Was that Robert? Yeah. Oh, there he is. Matthew 13, 15. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. There's that term they would understand. Okay? The idea of coming together in knowledge and instruction. So anytime you see this, it's a participle called uh, paraclethosine. And anytime you see this participle, it's either being knit together or brought together in unity or it's being brought together in knowledge. And context has to tell us which. Okay? What I'm going to make the case is it's better understood as coming together in knowledge. In other words, Paul is instructing the saints. Um, let me give you another passage. How about that 1519 of Matthew? For out of the heart, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm giving you the wrong. That's the wrong passage. Forget, oh. forget about that. Okay. <laughs> um, that's a good passage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. What I wanted to mention in the Matthew 1519 was the idea of the heart. Um, first of all, realize, friends, the idea of the heart that we see listed up in this passage, it's not the idea of feelings. It's everything's feelings. You know, it's not that. The idea in this culture would be it's the center of thought and how the thought impacts the emotions. And that's the passage that I have for you in Matthew 15:19. So now read it with the understanding we're talking about the heart. Listen to what's said here. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Uh, well, okay, so you see out of the heart comes all of these bad ideas. So do you see how it's being used there in Matthew? The heart isn't an, you know, it isn't just the emotional center, but it's the intellectual center as well. Okay, So the heart needs to be changed. In other words, these people are going to have to think differently or think well on the things of the Lord. So it's not just emotional. Now, I want to get to the understanding of this participle having been knit together. Okay, Now, who had the Exodus 4, 12, and 15 passage? And what I'm going to, again, the case I'm making is this would be better understood as being instructed rather than being knit together. And you're going to see examples of it in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, and also the New Testament. Go ahead. 12 and yeah, 4, 12, and 15. Now then, go and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Yeah, right there. So right there, that teach is the same participle that we see here, knit together. So the idea is divine instruction in the Old Testament. Okay. So the Lord is going to come together with Moses and give him divine instruction. That's the idea. Then in verse 15, the same term is used. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Yeah, there, that teaching again is this idea of instruction. So again, and I'm sorry, I read the wrong... It's, let me just try to... This is a long one, by the way, this participle. It's sum bibasthentes, okay? And that is actually a participle that is ongoing. Okay, so the idea is that they're going to be instructed by the Lord, and obviously it's through Paul. Now, I've got some other passages. Who had the Judges 13.8? Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Yeah, so Manoah, he's the father of Samson, and he's praying 
that the angel of the Lord would come again and instruct and give them teaching. So again, we see this idea. Now let's go to the New Testament and see how it's used. 1 Corinthians 2.16. Rich, you had that one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Yeah, so that's used. It actually comes from Isaiah 40.13. So Paul quotes that passage in Isaiah. And again, the idea that we should instruct the Lord. Obviously, we should not. He knows all things. But that instruction, again, is the same term that's used here. So my point is, friends, I think it's better to understand this term instead of being knit together as being instructed. And we have evidence of that. Notice in the passage, it's going to talk about knowledge, understanding. So in a passage that talks about knowledge and understanding, when a participle can be either translated knit together in unity or to be instructed, we would do well to go with the context and go with instruction because that's the thought that Paul is dealing with. So now you're going to see that this passage actually makes more sense. Let me explain. Notice this phrase, attaining. That's not there in your New American Standard Bibles. Do you notice it's italicized, right? And the reason why they had to put that in there is if you have this participle having been knit together, you have to have attaining in there. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. But if it's having been instructed in love, and by the way, that love doesn't mean they were taught about love, but rather Paul lovingly instructed them. That's the idea. So if they're having been instructed in love, and then it would continue literally in all the wealth, not attaining to all the wealth, but in all the wealth. Okay, so it would go on to talk about this idea of wealth. So again, remember what we have going on at Colossae. Hierapolis and Laodicea. They're extremely wealthy. And what I think Paul is doing is he's taking a play on words. He's saying, you want to talk about wealth. You have all the wealth you need in who? In Christ. You need nothing else. And so he's, he's using this as a play on words. Now, notice the phrase continues, and it says, that comes. Where does this wealth come from? Well, it comes from full assurance of understanding resulting in what? In true knowledge. Now, by the way, that resulting, that could be translated in because it's a preposition ace. Okay, so it's either a preposition of result or of sphere. Now, let me read it to you this way. Let's start again in having been instructed. Having been instructed in love. This is the way I would read it. Having been instructed in love in all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding in true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself. That's how I would read it. In other words, it's all in Christ himself. That's how the flow would go. Now, if you translate it with resulting there, it's, it's not a problem. It doesn't change the meaning. And I think maybe the NAS is right. I'm not sure. But it can go either way. The point is, notice, friends, that we can have full assurance in understanding. Remember our discussions about what we can know and what we can't know? about mystery, what is revealed and what's not. Notice what we're called to. We're called to a full assurance of understanding. In fact, the understanding is used in Colossians 1.9. We looked at that earlier. And the full assurance has to do with the idea of certainty. We can have certainty in what? If you follow the logic, it's in the mystery of Christ. So again, the idea isn't that we have this mystery where we can't know but rather the exact opposite. We can know and we're expected to know. Who had um, this? I'm going to talk about true knowledge here that we see. Oh, let me put my next line up here. True knowledge. That comes from Romans 10.2. We see that also in there. Epikinosine. 
Who had Romans 10 too? Yeah, Pat. Now listen to how important this true knowledge is. If you don't have true knowledge, listen to what happens to you, according to Paul, talking about his Jewish brethren. Romans 10.2 I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The not according to knowledge. That was the problem with the Israelites. They had a zeal for God. They had emotions for God. They wanted to, to be with God. They wanted the things of God in a sense. They had a zeal for him, but it wasn't according to knowledge. They missed it. They tried to establish their righteousness by law. And, and it's interesting, what Paul makes the point in is if you understood the law, he's making a play on words in Romans 3, then you would know that the law, in other words, Torah, speaks of the Christ. So it's interesting, those who had the law, namely Torah, tried to establish themselves by the law, and in so doing, demonstrated they didn't have true knowledge. That's how important knowledge is to the people of God. And our people in our country today are also perishing for their lack of true knowledge. They have a zeal for spiritual things. They have a zeal for a lot of different things, but they don't have knowledge, and they're perishing because of it. That's why it's so important to get the Word of God right. That's why we strive to get the Gospel right, because true knowledge is integral to the Gospel and to salvation itself. That's why it's so important. Okay, now notice the true knowledge is of God's mystery. Okay, now who had... Did I give Colossians 126 out? I want to remind you, yeah, Jeremy, you want to read that passage. Now remember, we talked about this last time, because this is about the mystery that was formerly concealed but is now revealed. Okay, now that's important for our next, when we get into the next slide, I'll explain why. I'll start with verse 25. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Okay, good, thanks. Okay, so let's talk about this idea again of mystery. I know I pounded this a little bit. Let's hit it again. Remember, the postmodern generation, the emergence, they're latching onto terms like mysterion, mystery. And they're saying because there's mystery, that gives us an indication that there's things that we cannot know that are revealed in the Scriptures. What I'm making the claim is the Scriptures are actually saying the opposite, that what was formerly concealed is now revealed. That's exactly what he just read in verse 26. So, when a postmodern comes to you and they say, well, what about this mystery language in the Bible? It actually proves our point, not the postmodern point. What was formerly concealed is now revealed. Now, in the next verse, when we get to verse 3, you're going to see another play on this term hidden or mystery. And I'll explain that it's not something that's hidden to people, but rather it's stored up. And I'll explain that here when we get to it. So, again, let me just read this again, this whole passage. And I'm going to read it the way I think it would be best translated. For I want you to know... How great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face so that their hearts may be strengthened, having been instructed in love in all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding in the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself. You see, it's a little bit more powerful to me. It's all about the knowledge of who Christ is. That's what Paul is zealous that they know. Okay, Okay. now let's move on to the next verse. We're going to see that Christ is, in fact, the storehouse of all wisdom 
Now, remember, this is where we left off in the past verse that uh, he wanted them to attain to the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom, this is verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, now let me get a few verses. I think I had a verse to read for somebody. Oh, no, not in this passage. We already read 126, so we're good there. Um, Notice here, it talks about the hiddenness of all these treasures. And now you might be saying to yourself, self, didn't back in verse 26 of Colossians 1, didn't we already see that what was formerly concealed is now revealed? Is this a contradiction? We get to verse 3, and it says, in whom, namely Christ, are hidden... What? All the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. So here's the point. Is it still hidden? In what sense is it hidden in Christ? That's the idea. And what I would point out is several things. First of all, notice what's hidden in Christ are treasures. We see this idea in Isaiah 33 where the treasures of God are wisdom and knowledge leading to salvation and fear of the Lord. These are the treasures that are being claim to be in christ okay so all of the information about redemption from the beginning of genesis 1 1 all the way to revelation all that wisdom and all of the understanding of salvation is in christ it's found in him that's the idea notice the term that i have um oh in fact i gotta put it up here where's my gizmo notice the term are this is important because it has to do with a verb of being esteem In other words, what's being said here is that it exists, in whom exists hidden. Okay? So the point here is that what I'm trying to do is to say, well, in what sense should we take hidden? And I'm going to make the case that we should take hidden, not in the sense that it's it's another mystery, but rather that Christ is the storehouse. It's stored up in him. And the idea is then we have to go nowhere else. That's the idea. So notice also it's not just some of the treasures, but the highlight or the bold term there, all. It's all of the treasures. So where else do you have to go if you're a Colossian Christian who previously was engaged in a religion where they made you engage in a mystery initiation rite whereby you invoked the help of angels to protect you from the stoichia, these angelic beings who ruled your world, who determined whether or not you had a good marriage, whether or not you had a good crop for your sheep, whether or not your bank accounts were full. Now what's being stated is no. All of the wisdom and all of the knowledge, everything you need, everything is in Christ. And this would be a radical correction for these people who may be on the fence saying, well, gosh, maybe I still need to invoke these angels. Now, let me go back to some history. If the earthquake that happened in Laodicea and Hierapolis in Colossae, there was another one that happened in 60 AD. If Paul wrote this after that, and I, I can't prove that he did, but if he did, he doesn't mention the earthquake. But what if these people who were brand new Christians, think about this, they had just come out of this pagan idea where they had to invoke angels for protection. And within months, maybe a year, of them becoming a Christian, their stuff falls down, right? Earthquake time. And all of a sudden, all those who said, what are you, nuts, going after this Jesus of Nazareth? You need to invoke these angels. That's what the surround. And then all their stuff falls down. They may be tempted to say, you know what? 
I think you're right. I think I better go back to those angels. When, when I invoke the angels, stuff doesn't fall down. I come to Christ, stuff falls down. You see what I'm saying? Let's keep it really simple. And so what he's saying is no, 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 no. The mystery of knowledge isn't found in this mystery religion at Colossae or Hierapolis or in Laodicea in the temple. The mystery of all knowledge and wisdom pertaining to salvation is in Christ. That's, what it's, oh, that's, that's Paul's point. Okay, I think that's what he's saying. Now, let's go look at the broader view of Scripture for a moment. And I want you to think of this idea of progressive revelation. This idea of what did we know and when did we know it. Think about if we were living in the time of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, back in the garden, this is the admonition or really the rebuke of the serpent by God. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is the first look of the gospel. Now, if that's all you had, all you knew is that there was a man that would one day come and crush the serpent. And so in a real sense, the whole Old Testament is an unveiling of who that one would be, where he would come from. We get to Genesis 9. We see Messiah, this he. And by the way, you see where I have it highlighted red, that he? That is a third-person masculine singular pronoun in Hebrew. It's who. Remember I talked about who is he and he is she? In Hebrew, it sounds like who's on first. You get all confused. Well, that proves the point that this passage isn't about the many descendants. Because remember, later on in the Bible, for instance, we get to Genesis 15, God takes Abraham out. Because remember, Abraham says, Lord, how will I know I will receive the promise of the seed? And the Lord takes him out and he says, look up into the stars, so shall your seed be. Well, there's many. But the first promise was related to the singular, the one. And so if the one doesn't show up, namely Messiah, there's no salvation for the many. Are you with me? Okay. That's why Paul is correct when he says in Galatians 3.16 that that seed was one, namely Christ. You know, there's an author I read named Peter Enns who criticized Paul and said Paul was playing fast and loose with the New Testament Using the new, the, or I should say, playing fast and loose with the Old Testament, because after all, seed we know is plural. And Paul uses it as a singular in Galatians 3.16, is referring to Christ. That author, Peter Enns, is incorrect. Paul is taking it in its historical context because this is the first promise. The very first promise has to do with a third person masculine singular. It was all about the Messiah. That's what it's all about. And so all of the riches of salvation have always been in him from the very beginning. Okay, And that's exactly the point, again, that Peter's making related to the ministry, the ministry of the prophets. Again, friends, let me pound this home a little bit. The ministry of the prophets was this. It wasn't that they were just giving haphazard predictions, writing better than they knew. No. Peter's contention is that these men who were prophets were teaching messianic doctrine. They were teaching about who the Messiah would be and the timing and what he would do. Okay, And that's what, exactly what Peter is saying here. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, he says, As to this salvation, that is our common salvation through faith in Christ, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you 
made careful searches and inquiries. Notice they're studying, seeking to know. Now notice this. What person? What person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now remember, Peter was the one who got it all wrong. He thought it was all glories. But then when he got his theology straight, he understood, no, there was suffering first and then glories to follow. But notice, it's in whom? Colossians 2, 3. I just want you to see the flow. In whom exist, stored up, all the treasures. Well, who is that? Well, it's the he in Genesis 3.15. It's the person that the prophets were wrangling with. This is who salvation is all about. This is where wisdom, knowledge comes from. It's been all about Messiah all along. And so if the Colossians go after invoking angels, they're missing it. They've missed all wisdom and they've missed salvation. That's, that's the point here. Okay? Okay. We'll move on here to uh, the next verses, verses 4. And, oh, by the way, this is the first explicit warning by Paul of the heresy faced by those at Colossae and surrounding areas. So he's been implying it, but this is going to be the first overt, really explicit warning that he gives. Let's put up the verses here. Verses 4 through 5 of Colossians 2, Paul writes, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, I have a passage here, and I want to talk about this idea of good discipline. Sometimes that was used in the military context where troops would retain good discipline. In other words, under attack or as they're attacking the enemy, their ranks would not divide. They would keep good discipline. And the idea is that they were sound. And so it's the idea of doctrinally sound in the Christian context, okay? But we see the same thing with stability. And who had Second Peter 3.17? You're going to see this idea of stability or steroma. That's the idea of not bending or failing under pressure. Second Peter 3.17 You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Great. Thanks so much. So the idea there is that they will not fall. And this idea of stability means holding firm to faith in Christ. So in Christ, this idea of all the knowledge of salvation, the gospel, is found in him. And if they remain stable, then they're not being persuaded by outside arguments. But if they do not remain stable, then they are being persuaded. That's the idea. Now notice, Paul is saying here in these words that he's very encouraged. In other words, he he seems to be saying, he says, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit rejoicing. He's rejoicing to see that, in fact, they're not falling for the wiles of the enemy. So this is an encouraging sign. Those at Colossae and the surrounding areas are holding to doctrinal soundness. Um, By the way, the term for persuasive argument it's also used in James 1.22, and it has to do with being reasoning that is somehow short of perfection, reasoning alongside. It would be like making a miscalculation in math. You've missed it. And so, again, uh, the idea isn't whether one has zeal or not. It's whether or not you get it right. 
right? Can you imagine, I was an airline pilot for seven years. Can you imagine if um, I crashed and I come out of the burning wreckage and, you know, stuff strewn all over? And I said, well, you know, I tried real hard. You know, well, they don't care if you try hard. If you up, end up bending up metal and breaking the airplane, they don't care. You have to land the airplane. And that's the same thing with salvation. It doesn't matter if you have zeal and you have good intentions. What matters is if you found Christ truly. Okay? That's what matters. It's not intention. So, friends, let's use that as a mini application that when we're witnessing to people, our culture elevates good intentions. Okay? Well, we're not to judge the person's heart. We don't know if they have good intentions or not. What we are doing is proclaiming the gospel. And the gospel has content. And what we're doing is lovingly articulating accurately the terms of the gospel. And whether they have good intentions or not, that's God's doing, okay? Because at the end of the the day, good intentions don't matter. It's whether we get the gospel right. Okay, let me show you this. I like charts. I um, I asked one day Keith if he thinks in charts. And Bob's convinced that he thinks with PowerPoint. <laughs> but, uh, but, Keith, <laughs> but, but Keith said, I just think the way I think. And so I was just trying to get a little insight into Keith's mind. And, but I think with charts, so I'll have to be honest with you there. So let me show you my chart here. Think about this. Christ alone is what Paul is advocating. And he's saying if you have Christ alone, you're fine. But if you go with Christ plus invoking angels or in our day invoking anything else, yeah, I have Christ, but you know, I need to get closer by also invoking the spirit world through meditation. Now we have slipped from the true gospel, haven't we? So if you have Christ alone, then you have saving faith. But if you have Christ plus invoking angels, you no longer have stability, but you're in apostasy. Okay, and that is the problem. You're heading towards the road of perdition. Let me get into the next verses here. Verses 6 through 7. Sanctification is by grace as well. Paul continues, he says, Therefore, anytime you see a therefore, it's usually connecting the previous thought to this one. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. You see that term received? That actually, I thought it was going to be lambano, but it's not. It's um, a little different. It's paralambano. And that has to do with acquiring information. So lambano, if I was to use that term, it would be I'm taking Lois into my house. I'm receiving you, right? And I'm receiving you as a friend or whatever. But paralambano, which is used here, is used as receiving someone's information. So it's more informational than it is the person itself. And so it directly relates to the content of the gospel. Who had 1 Corinthians 15.3? You're going to see it used here. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Yeah, what I first received. And that's the term there. So paralambano. So the idea there is Paul's talking about the information of the gospel, the content of it, what he received. And remember, according to Galatians chapter 1, he was personally instructed by the Lord, wasn't he? Remember in Galatians chapter 1? And how long was he personally instructed by the Lord, Paul? It was for three years. How long were the apostles, the disciples with Christ? For three years. And again, remember our criteria to be an apostle? You had to be with Christ from the beginning. You had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection, and you had to do the miraculous, right? And you had to be called, those really those four. Well, 
Paul is brought up to those standards, is he not? Because he, in fact, sees the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, and he also is instructed for three years by the Lord himself. So it's not as if Paul doesn't meet the criteria or the criteria was bent so that Paul could get in as an apostle, but rather he is brought up to those standards. And that's why he calls himself one untimely born. You see what I'm saying? So again, the criteria for an apostle holds even with Paul. So again, he received the information of the gospel, and it was even, we know, from the Lord himself. Now, notice this phrase here. I'm going to get back to this PowerPoint. It says, so walk in him. Now, that's going to, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. That's talking about our daily walk, okay? But notice what the passage says, says having been firmly rooted, okay? So this is the idea of being firmly planted into the soil, um, the idea would be that you have saving faith because you're firmly planted and you will grow. But notice it's a perfect passive participle. So it's passive, meaning it's happening to you. Remember, active voice, you do it. Passive voice, it happens to you. So the idea is God is the one who has firmly planted them, and it's a perfect tense, meaning it happened in the past, and its effect is still with us until this day. And that proves to us that having been firmly rooted is talking about justification, our salvation, because it's been completely accomplished by God and it's with us until this day. It's, it's final, right? It's justification. Now, when we get to the next participle that I have bolded here, being built up, again, it's a passive. Okay, now why is that important? Because it's happening to us. We're not the ones who are doing it. Uh, Men cannot sanctify themselves. God is the one who's sanctifying us. He is building us up, but here it's in the present tense because it is currently ongoing. Sanctification is a process, you see? So by getting our grammar right, we even see theology in the grammar, okay? And it proves to us that, yes, God is the one who is doing this whole thing. The results aren't left up to us at all. So now let's look at this term, walk in him, and I, I like some of the passages here. Romans, who had the Romans 8, 1, and 4? Yeah, Randall, do you want to do that one? And then whoever had the Second Corinthians 5, 6, or 7, I think that was Scott. Yeah, I'll have you go after him. So this is Romans 8, 1, and 4. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And 4. Yeah, and that's so, just setting the stage, yep, okay so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yeah, so we're no longer walking according to the flesh. In other words, we left the flesh. We're no longer in that realm, because that was the realm of the stoichia. That was the realm of Satan. That was the area of darkness. We left that And now we are walking according to the Spirit, which is the sphere in which godly believers walk once they have, in fact, trusted in Christ. Because when they have trusted in Christ, they are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit who causes them to persevere and to be sanctified. Okay, So that's the idea. So again, it's all God's doing, and it's because of the deposited Spirit. Now, who had 2 Corinthians 5, 6 or 7? It was Scott, right? Yeah. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. Oh, okay. Okay, let me just stop you right there. That, that's why I missed it. Um, the term 
in verse 7 in the NAS's walk. But it's the same idea. It's, I, I didn't, it didn't register when you said to live by faith. But that's, I even like live by faith to a certain degree better because that's the idea. We are to live by faith. So in other words, if you were justified and you were saved by faith in Christ, you are not to now depart from that saving faith and now somehow work out your salvation by your own. Remember, Philippians 2, 12-13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it says, knowing that it is God in you, right? The very next verse that's doing it. So the idea is we never depart from faith. Our saving, what, the faith that saves us is also the faith that sanctifies us. So we never depart from that, okay? That's the idea of walking. So, the point is, I'm going to make this application later, is one thing to say, yes, I trusted in Christ at one time, but now if I go down my Christian walk and I say, you know, Christ was fine, but I found some things that I like a little bit better, now we have, we have to really question whether we are ever saved. That's the idea. So if you are justified by saving faith in Christ, so walk in him. That's the idea. And that has to do with our daily walk. Let me talk about our daily walk. This should affect... When we're in the grocery stores, when uh, us guys have the magazine racks up, we keep our eyes, well, it's like we're on the lamb, we keep our eyes down and our head on the, on the checkout line, right? This has to do, why? Because we're called according to the purposes of God. We're no longer living for ourselves, but for the glory of Yahweh, for Christ who called us and redeemed us. So this walk has to do with our personal obedience, remembering all the while it is Christ in us enabling us to be obedient. Okay, so, uh, but, but the point is, is we do have a responsibility, and the responsibility is now because I am in fact alive to Christ and dead to sin, I don't live any longer in the realm of the sinful world. We are in what's called the no-sin zone. Okay, all right, <laughs> right, like the no-spin zone. Now, that doesn't mean I can accomplish no sin by my own efforts. That's not the idea. D.A. Carson gave a lecture once, and I remember him talking about a story where he had an English teacher who was really tough, and I don't remember what grade he was in, but the English teacher in a real bull, he was, by the way, the English teacher, he said it was a real tough guy. He was an old paratrooper, and he had you know, killed more Germans than smallpox, right? I mean, he was a tough bird, you know. And this guy said, there is no chewing gum in this class, right? And D.A. Carson thought, well, how ironic that there's no chewing gum in the class because at that very moment, he was chewing gum, okay? And he says, well, of course there's chewing gum. How can you say there's no chewing gum in class when, in fact, I'm in class and I'm chewing gum? The idea wasn't that he couldn't chew gum. The idea, he was in a no-chewing-gum zone, you see what I'm saying? And the idea is, it's not that we can't physically sin, because we do. The idea is we're in the no-sin zone. We're in the sphere of Christ. Amen. We're living in the church of the Holy God. The Holy One of Israel has called us out. And so we have to always keep and bear in mind when we're in our daily lives, we're not just bearing our names alone, but the name of the risen one and keeping his glory at the forefront. And that, to me, friends is about walking in the Lord. Again, all by grace. God enables us. I will not succeed if God doesn't do it. It won't happen. Okay? I'll fall short. Okay, now, let me keep moving on here, and I want to show you uh, a passage in Galatians that I think directly relates. In fact, maybe I'll have Bob mention a word here just about what you saw at uh, Bethel. 
And I want to talk about this because I think this passage in this section about walking in Christ directly relates to what's happening at Bethel. If we, and why don't you explain what happened at Bethel related to them getting into divination? And, um, yeah. um, Jan Markell called me, I think, a week ago, Tuesday, and said they're having Buddhist, uh, two Buddhists, actually, and a Christian professor who yeah. practices Buddhist-style meditation. And it was going to be a symposium. So it was a rainy, dark day, rush hour. And so I met Jan here, and we just pulled in there. And I'll never forget this. It's like eerie. Wow. It was so strange. And so here's this packed auditorium with over 150 students. And I had I could barely get inside the door because I had to go park. Wow. And here they were urging these students to practice this meditation where you try to shut off your thinking. Hmm. And they continually were implying that thinking is a problem for Christians, <laughs> as if thoughts were bad things, any kind of thoughts. Wow. And so they, so the thing went on for over an hour, yeah. and then Jan and I went on the radio and talked about it, yeah. and we invited a Bethel professor to join in. And if you heard the radio show, Jatara was there shared her testimony about having been saved out of that. And ironically, the Buddhist monk that they had there is in charge of whatever they call a Buddhist worship place where her mother goes. Is that correct? Okay. And so we were asking them, okay, if you're going to have a symposium, couldn't you at least have one person on the panel telling the students what the Bible says about meditation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not even allowed. Okay, everything's open except for that. Now, when you were teaching this, I thought about that. My mind was going yeah. right back to that yeah. when you're talking about this here. Yeah, that's right. And so it's the idea is, yes, you need Christ. We're a Christian college. We're going to tell you you need Christ. But you're going to be perfected by some sort of practice gleaned from the pagan culture that's out right. there, especially from the East. And I've been fighting this battle for years now. On um, every available media that I can think about. And this verse is so important. Yeah. Okay. As you have wa- received Christ, so walk in Him. That's right. And the fact is, we don't begin by, by f- grace through faith and then be perfected by any other means. Right, right. Okay. It's always by grace through faith. Now, there are all kinds of other means out there. Zen meditation is another means. Yeah. But psychology is also another means. Right. Okay, so when they brought Christian psychology into the colleges, then they were saying, well, we're going to become sanctified by this. I have a book sitting on my desk right now that I ordered, (laughs) and it's hot off the press from the purpose-driven people. And and it's about, what's the name of it? Eight eight choices or eight attitudes that will lead to happiness. And it's basically just a rework of as far as I can tell, of the Be Happy Attitudes by Schuler mm. from 85. And they take the Beatitudes and they describe them this way, eight choices that will make you happy. So I'm going to write an article. My next article is going to be the fact that we're not perfected by willpower. Yeah, that's right. Okay? The Beatitudes are not teaching us willpower. Wow. Choose this and now you're going to be happy. That's right. The Beatitudes are descriptions of the citizens of the kingdom of God who are there because of God's work. 
Right, and by the time you get done with Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, you should say, I can't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it should be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, I choose to be perfect. <laughs> right. That's just so American. It is. Okay, it is. The Beatitudes aren't eight choices. They're eight descriptions of the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's right. All right. Um, you know, let me just... Why don't you finish and we'll open the Yeah, that sounds good. You know, there was a guy there that was a Bethel employee, and he said that he enjoys doing meditation because it helped sanctify him and made him more calm and more godlike, right? More godly. They were, they were describing things like loving kindness, peace, yeah. and stuff that are fruits of the Spirit. Right, but they're going to And they, and they said that you need to do this meditation to get like that. Well, the fruits of the Spirit do not come to us through... Any other means than, than the gospel exactly. and the work of grace. That's exactly what we see here in Galatians 3, 2 through 3. Listen to what Paul asks. Remember, these are the Galatians who are reverting back to Judaism. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive, that's Lombano, the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Of course, it's rhetorical. It was by hearing with faith. And now listen to what he says. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's exactly what that man at Bethel was trying to do. He says, well, yeah, Christ is fine, but now I'm going to perfect myself by works. Thank you. I will be sanctified by any means that I deem necessary. And remember, a means of sanctification is given to us by God. And if it's not given to us by God, then we're engaging in works. We're trying to perfect ourselves. And as Paul says, and I'll show you a passage later, we're severed from Christ if we have that idea. We've never understood the gospel. Those are serious words. Because remember, Paul was reminding them that those who went back to circumcision completely have been severed from Christ. They didn't understand the gospel. That was the point. Let me um, talk about Christian yoga. This actually came from a lecture I gave last week, but it comes from a website that I picked up. I just wanted, what does the average person who believes in yoga teach? And this comes from a website on the web here. It says, listen to what their claim is. Being quiet with God allows us to create enough psychological and spiritual space that God can truly create an inner sanctuary in us. Being quiet enough to hear our Lord's voice is not optional. What are they claiming? It's essential for growth. Well, where did the Lord say that? And if the Lord didn't say that, are they not becoming their own lawgiver? And if they're becoming their own lawgiver, are they not engaged in idolatry and also trying to perfect themselves by works? Now listen, it says, Let God bless your efforts to get closer to Him and the joy-filled, healthy life He has planned for you. And this is where it comes from. So that's the idea. These people think that they can, yeah, they started with Christ, but they'll perfect themselves through any means that they want. Paul says the opposite. If you were saved through faith in Christ, so you walk in him. Let me give you just a quick diagram. We were justified. At that point, we're justified by saving faith. And then what we see is this process of sanctification. And then we see the act of glorification where we'll be raptured, we'll be given a new body. And remember Romans 8.30, for those whom he called, or for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For them he justified, he also then glorified. God does it from the beginning to the end. It's all aorist tense. In other words, he's done it all. If you were justified, you will be glorified. It's all been done by him. But notice, because you started by faith, God, in his sovereign ability, is going to keep you in that faith. So the idea is, after justification, you continue on by the means of sanctification because faith has an object. 
And if you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you must continue it. So those who try to sanctify themselves by different means like yoga or meditation are now departing. They're going wayward. They have no stability in the faith and they're heading towards perdition. Why? Because they never had genuine salvation in the beginning. They were never of Christ, okay? And that's the idea. So application, this is not just for you alone, but for everyone who's hearing. Let us examine ourselves this morning. Let's ask the question, am I trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Am I trusting in what Christ has commanded alone for sanctification? Meaning we have to know, we have to know what he's ordained and what he's given us. And again, Paul says this, Galatians 5, 2 through 4, or 2 and 4, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen by the idea of the idea of fallen. You have fallen from the high ideal and notion and doctrine of grace. You have fallen to something inferior. Okay, that's the point. So, friends, what are we to do if we find ourselves trying to justify ourselves by any other means than Christ? We are to repent, forsake sin, self, the world, or anything else that we're trusting and, in fact, believe the gospel, which is centered on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. That is the remedy. Now, with that, let's open it up. I know, I'm sorry, there's only a few minutes. <laughs> Eric, I'm going to preach the same thing for my application. Oh. <laughs> Good, yeah, it's yeah, a the, similar theme. The, the golden calf, they got out of control, so I'm going to talk about <laughs> self-control from Peter and how it comes yeah, to us. Amen. How do we gain self-control? Amen. I just wondered if you could articulate the difference between what you were saying just a few moments ago where you're in the grocery store and you're needing to be in the sphere of obedience yeah. and make choices and between, you know, what Bob was saying about works righteousness. I mean, they're, they, on the yeah. outside they look the same, they but do. it's fundamental difference there. So That's I a great question, Carla. Yeah, what we're claiming is that what God does through grace is he changes the way you and I think. So when I go to the grocery store, because God's Spirit is within me, he enables me to say, I will no longer live for myself, but for the one who's redeemed me. Okay. Now, if I enter into a works-based righteousness, what I would be doing is saying, in order to enter heaven, in order to enter salvation, I must, by my own power, keep away from these things. And of course, I won't be able to do that. But the point is, is the word of God and the means of grace change my thought. That's why we say in, for instance, Romans 12, two, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. So by God's grace and by sitting under the means of grace, he changes me so that I think differently and my affections change from the things that are created to the creator. Anytime we sin, our affections are on that which is created whether it be men, women, money, whatever, rather than the creator. Yeah. It's Patrick. very hard for unbelievers to understand the difference there. Is yeah. there anything you can give us that we might say to them? Because an unbeliever looks at both those things. Well, you're both, both those things are you're trying to do the right thing for the sake of your religion. So what's the difference? Yeah, you know, um, an analogy that I've used, and again, I would cite scripture, but like, for instance, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there we're saved. Then in verse 10 it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Okay, so the idea is, is I'm justified completely by faith alone in Christ alone. But my walk has been ordained as well by God and he empowers me to be obedient. So think of it this way. If you have an engine that runs, that drives your car, think of uh, saving faith as the engine running. What, what saves you uh, or what drives your car? The engine. What saves you? Your saving faith. But if your engine is on, you will necessarily produce exhaust. Okay, now does the exhaust actually make your car move? No, but if your engine is on, you must necessarily have exhaust. So I look at my works as a necessary byproduct of my saving faith. It doesn't save me, but it must necessarily be there if I am in fact saved. Exactly, and the other thing is once you... The, the command of God itself is a means of grace because that's the word of God. That's right. So when I preached in, in the sermon on 2 Peter 1, I'll point that out. We need to know what God says walking in the Spirit looks like. Wow. This, is the work, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the fruit of the flesh. Yeah. And if you look at yourself and you see the fruit of the flesh, then it's a time... Get back and say, okay, am I really believing God's promises? Right. Am I really sitting under the means of grace? Am I really trusting God? What mm-hmm. am I doing that the flesh is showing up all the time? Mm-hmm. It's always a battle. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that in Peter because it says that we've been provided everything that pertains to life and godliness. Oh, and that wow. through the magnificent promises of God, we will and then add these things, these virtues. Wow. Wow. Okay, so Beautiful. we'll see you upstairs oh, uh, in a half hour. All right. Crash <laughs> the